Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. How many actors does it take to screw in a light bulb? 100. One to change it, and 99 to say, you know, I could have done that better. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actor and gadfly Sam Harris. Indeed. Author of the new essay collection, Ham, Slices of a Life. That'll help break the ice. We'll hear more from Sam later. Plus, we'll speak with actor and writer Zoe Kazan about her new play, Trudy and Max in Love. Also coming up, musician Jeremy J. DJs your next party. We dig into an Oscar-nominated short film, and we learn why fiction writer Jackie Collins recommends this cure for the common kidnapping. Gag first, and then legs second. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Heavy snow slammed the East Coast yesterday. A rough start in the talks for peace in Syria. Well, he's one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL, but now Seattle Seahawk Richard Sherman is one of the most infamous, too. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Josh Wolk. He is editorial director of the pop culture website Vulture. Josh, welcome. Thank you. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about this company, 3VR, that unveiled this new program they have for retailers that can basically monitor crowds that come into their store and not only uh, record their age, gender, but also their mood. And they can collect this data to let you know when (laughs) your happiest customers will come in, your happiest 26-year-old customers are. So how does it collect this data? Well, it's facial recognition software. Okay, so there's a camera. Yes. So it basically is trained to know all the uh, tells of grumpiness or uh, ennui or uh, joy and ebullience. Wow. And so this is displayed somewhere, I guess? There's video of people milling around in the store with the word grumpy next to their faces or something? You basically see, like, the crowd of people and around everybody's face is a little square that gives various uh, data on it, but also basically ranks your mood from (laughs) 1 to 10, 1 being really, really a miserable person and 10 being uh, the (laughs) happiest customer they ever could see. Like, why is everyone at our store in a bad mood? Oh, we're funeral directors. Yeah, So that's exactly. why everyone's really So that sad. shows they're doing your job <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. Like, good. Everybody's, <laughs> nobody's happy. It's either a funeral director's place or Walmart. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or the dentist office. Well, this seems like they're using this in stores, of course, because there's money there, but this could be a great tool to have at home, I think, right? Like, you could read the scene before you told your son you were sending him to math camp or something like that. Absolutely. absolutely. You would want to have one of these monitoring your family at all times if you're in an argument with your spouse and they say, like, oh, you're in such a bad mood all the time. You could say, am I? And then pull up the last month's <laughs> worth of data and average it out and say, my mood is a 4.5, which is, you know, the midpoint. So I'm all right. All right, Joshua. Thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a rubber duck in a bathtub of booze. That is not an olive. Be careful. Let us start with history. This week back in 1993, Hawaiian Chad Rowan became an international sports star. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Chad Rowan is big in Japan. Actually, he's always been big physically. Six foot, eight inches tall, he was a high school basketball star. But like many Hawaiians, he grew up watching sumo wrestling. And at age 18, he flew to Japan to become a Yokozuna, a sumo grand champion. He should have failed. See, in Japan, you don't become a champ just by winning. You also have to display dignity, 
a dignity some sumo judges thought could never be found in a foreigner. In any way, tall wrestlers were supposed to be pushovers. Literally, they were top-heavy and easily tossed around. But Chad wasn't tossed around, maybe because he weighed around 500 pounds with long arms that let him do the tossing. Under the wrestling name Akebono, New Dawn, Chad became the first foreign Yokozuna in 2,000 years. Japanese audiences loved him. He even opened Japan's Winter Olympic ceremony. And his popularity paved the way for other foreigners to ascend to Sumo's highest ranks. But after eight years and some knee injuries, Akebono retired from the sport. Today, he freelances as a pro wrestler. Think of him as Japan's Andre the Giant. So that was the history. Now for the drink. I am speaking with Tim Rita. He's bartender at Lures Lounge in Honolulu on the island of Oahu, where Akibono was born. Tim, what cocktail does that inspire you to make? I made the Nalo Smash. Nalo is short for Waimanalo, where Akibono is from. So I did a mix of Hawaiian flavors and Japanese flavors. There is some back and forth between the two culturally, I guess. It goes hand in hand. Like sumo and uh, Hawaiian wrestlers. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what's in this thing? They're fresh shiso leaves. Like you have on sushi? Exactly. They're kind of minty almost. Yep, kind of minty, a little bit grainy. And then I use uh, fresh mint grown here in Hawaii. I muddled that with some organic honey. We do make organic honey in Hawaii as well. All right. Muddled that up, and I made a special coconut puree with coconuts from Waimanalo. Then I added some Suntory Yamazaki, which is a single malt from Japan, very similar to a single malt scotch. So lots of just everyday household liquors. (laughs) Not so bad. (laughs) Shake that up, strain it over ice dust some nutmeg over, and I garnish it with a single shiso leaf right across the top. So it's like a big stamp, a big smash. Like a sumo wrestler stomping foot or something. Now, it's my understanding that you actually, you know, followed Akibono's career. Oh, I, I think everyone did. He's probably one of our um, biggest sports figures here in Hawaii. Like, literally. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sumo's very big in Hawaii. Yeah, after he became grand champion, actually another Hawaiian also became grand champion. Yeah, um, Musashi Maru from Hawaii as well, too. What is it about Hawaiians that they make such great sumo wrestlers? I don't know. People love wrestling. When I grew up, when I was uh, in Hawaii, we, it was always wrestling, sumo, and football. So, yeah. you know, it's a lot of eating, good combination. And Brendan, just last week, the first European sumo wrestler, a Bulgarian, mm. his name is Kaloyan Malyanov. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He okay. obtained Japanese citizenship, so when he retires, he can stay in Japan and be kind of a sumo elder. Wow. Sumo is becoming a veritable melting pot. (laughs) Which is what they eat, I think, to get so huge. Just melted (laughs) things in pots. A melting cauldron. It's probably more. Stall cheese in there. Uh, Folks, lumber over to dinnerpartydownload.org and you'll find all of our cocktail recipes. So we've made some small talk, had a drink, but it's not a party till there's music to play. So here with song suggestions is indie musician Jeremy J. He is known for his obsession with dreams and for his stream of conscious crooning over synth-pop beats. His latest album is out this week on K Records, and it's got a darker gothic feel. What would he play at a dinner party, we wondered. Hi, my name is Jeremy J. My new album is called Abandoned Apartments, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. 
first song I'd like to play is a song by Rose McDowell. It's a song called This Calling. Take my sweetest lie, measure it for size. It's true, I lie for you. Came out 2008. Rose McDowell is a Scottish musician who started a band called Strawberry Switchblade in 1981 and uh, had a solo career that kind of went under the radar. No one talks about what she does, which is a shame because it's so beautiful. You know, there's no drums, there's no flashing lights, and there's no distractions. The songwriting shows through a little bit clearer. Take away the dark, pull it from my heart. What I'd really like to highlight is the verse is uh, D minor, E minor, and from the E minor it goes to E major. Like the glory chord. <laughs> I think it just shows in songwriting how change is so effective. The next song I'd like to play for you is this song by Elliot Smith. It's called Needle in the Hay off his first album on Kill Rock Stars. Needle in the Hay is fascinating to me because he doesn't play the top three strings of the guitar and uh, his voice is really dry, there's no reverb, it's very stark. In my opinion, it's his best song. Down the bus, nearly touching this dirty retreat. He's bringing into his poetry what might seem like mundane facts. Gonna walk, 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 four more blocks, plus the one in my brain. Like walking down Powell Street in Portland. I think it brings the listener as close as you can get to the singer. Really makes, for me at least, a complete picture. So leave me alone, you ought to be proud that I'm getting good marks. It's so fascinating when the singer, they're not trying to sing lyrics, and they sing in sight. Swearing your clothes, head down to toes, a reaction to Say you know what he did, but you idiot kid, you don't have a clue. I'm always searching for insight, and I'm not looking to be entertained only. Okay, let's mix it up a bit, and let's uh, let's get out of this world of uh, simplicity. Have you ever heard the song Performance by Tones on Tail? It was made in 1984, and, and if it came out now, it would fit right in. Synths and, and drum machine, and it just hits you in your face, like with a baseball bat. And then you, your face just goes in the stands. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> it just makes you want to dance. And it sounds kind of like textbook horror. They're fascinated with the surreal, the night. Shadows 
They were fans of David Lynch before David Lynch was cool. And finally, I'd like to play this new song we just recorded. It's called Graveyard Shift. This song is about working at a convenience store late at night, about that sense of family and knowing the secrets of that world. Sift through the dirt to get to go. That's kind of what pulls you through. Hold on tight and break the mold. The graveyard shifts the night the song. Rearrange the magazines and grind up. Dinner Party soundtrack courtesy of Jeremy J. His latest album, Abandoned Apartments, just came out this week on K Records. And we're going to let that play us into a quick break. When we return, we'll tell you how boxes are destroying pizza. We'll get a full serving of ham from performer Sam Harris. And best-selling author Jackie Collins has some etiquette advice. Try not to get kidnapped. Words to live by when the Dinner Party <laughs> download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later in the show, actor and writer Zoe Kazan talks about her new play, Trudy and Max in Love. We have a short chat with the director of one of this year's Oscar-nominated short documentaries. And in a few minutes, we will get schooled in pizza box technology at last. Oh, boy. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is author and queen of the beach read, Jackie Collins. She writes popular fiction, really popular fiction. She's the author of 29 New York Times bestselling novels. More than 500 million of her books have been sold in over 40 languages. Her latest is called Confessions of a Wild Child. And Jackie, welcome. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. Yes. We're excited to have you back. But I have to say, when I saw the title of this book, Jackie, I was hoping it was a memoir, Mm. Confessions of a Wild Child. Well, you know that I am writing a memoir. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Oh, man. Actually, there's a lot of me in Confessions of a Wild Child. That's the question. Well, that was my question. But, you know, I I know that this is a prequel to your Lucky Santangelo series. Yes. Uh, Lucky's the female hero. But it is true that Lucky's youth sounds a lot like yours. You were both sent away to boarding school. Right. You're both mischievous youth, to put it mildly. Yeah. Yes. So is it safe to say Lucky is your alter ego? I, I, I think it is in this book, yes. I think she did all the things that I did. And uh, she's kind of such an interesting character to write about because she becomes such an amazing woman, you know. And I wanted to show how <laughs> If you she do say of... so yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. She's not me. She's the woman I would like to be in another life. Oh. And women write to me all the time. They go, oh, you know, I broke up with my boyfriend and then I, I, I was lying on the bathroom floor crying. And I suddenly thought, what would Lucky do? And then I got up and I went, you know what? I'm getting out in the world again. She does give women inspiration. What, what about her isn't you? You were saying that she's the woman you'd like to be. What, what do you imbue her with that you wish you had? I wish that, uh, well, I think she's the woman that every woman would like to be. She does what she wants to do. She says what she wants to say. She doesn't take crap from anybody. And uh, it is a bit like you me, do actually. All that. 
<laughs> I'm waiting. This is terrible. This is terrible. Yeah. Um, this, no, you, she's and you know she's she's just crazy lucky. I, I love I love the character. I love writing the character. Well, you know, speaking of writing lucky, on the back of the book you advertise the next Lucky Santangelo book, which is due in February of next year. Yes. We've only been on the air for a couple of years, and in that time, this is your third appearance hyping a third <laughs> book. Forget just creatively, like physically, how can you write this much? I don't know. I I think I first came on this show with Poor Little Bitch Girl, right? (laughs) No, no, no. It was the one about the uh, the oligarchs. Goddess Uh, of Vengeance. Goddess of Vengeance. Yes. Oh, no, you mean uh, The Power Trip. Look, you can't even Even remember the titles of your books. You're writing them so fast. I know. Actually, I only write a book a year, but it seems like more. But this year, I've done two books because Confessions of a Wild Child and then The Lucky Santangelo Cookbook. I know. And she makes the best meatballs you've ever tasted. (laughs) It's not just cigarettes and drugs? Okay. No, no. All right, let's answer our listeners' questions, shall we? This first question comes from Cody in Arkansas, and Cody writes, My husband is a writer and often steals my jokes. Worse, he sometimes names the mean femme fatale after me. Don't you think this is rude? I think it's very rude. I think if you're going to write about family members, you've got to be very, very careful to disguise them. Mm. Certainly don't use their jokes because they're probably not that good in the first place. (laughs) But I think you have to really, you know, use another name, give them a different hair color. And and then when they come to you and say, that's me, you say, no, no, of course it's not. You sound like you speak from experience. This Hollywood wife came up to me when I wrote Hollywood Wives and she said, oh, that fading movie star in Hollywood Wives, it's my husband. And she was married to a very famous man. And I said, oh, no, of course it's not. I said, there's tons of fading movie stars in Hollywood. (laughs) Could be anyone. Which made her even more angry. Yeah, I'm sure she was pleased to hear that. Yeah, I know. Thrilled. (laughs) This is why we turn to you for etiquette advice. All right. Well, there you go, Cody. So so Jackie does think this is rude. Yes. And he should knock it off. Yeah. Basically. All right. And the next question comes from an anonymous listener in Southern California. I think we'll know why when we hear the question. How do you politely respond to a stranger who asks about your pregnancy when you're not pregnant? Oh, Oh, wow. That's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, I think you have to say, well, um, I'm not pregnant, but are you? (laughs) (laughs) To a man. Yes, to a man. No, I think if it's a woman, you say that. Yeah. You say, yeah, we're going to have the babies about the same time, aren't we? Oh, my <laughs> Give her a look. <laughs> but if it's a man, you just say, how dare you? Are you calling me fat? Yeah. That's a, you just own it. Just the classic answer. Yes, and make him cringe with embarrassment. Yes, and I think the rule to everyone here is don't open your mouth until you know what's going on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Here's something from Curious in Vermont. Curious writes, when rescuing someone who has been bound and gagged, Should you remove the gag first or free the arms first? Good question. Well, it depends on the situation. Sure. If it's a sexual situation... Neither. You'd free neither. Yes. But if it's a kidnapping situation, then pull out that gag so they can tell you where to catch the people who did it to you. But I think it might be not. I think it might be easier to remove uh, someone who is bound when they're not talking to you or screaming or expressing their frustration at what happened to them. That's true. No, I disagree because you've got to get that gag out so you can know what's going on, especially if somebody is creeping up behind you with a knife. Uh, they're going to say, watch out behind you. Oh, yeah. I but see. they can't I do see. that if they're gagged. You need two un- pairs of eyes. Yeah, you're me. happily undoing their arms. I like the idea of silence. Like, you know what? We'll get there in a second. Let me just untie this knot. Yeah, and then meanwhile, yeah. this person comes up behind you and bangs you on the head. Yeah, man. Yeah. All you're right. not thinking That's... like a pro. No, a you, you have to think these things through. Yes. Gag right. first, hands second. <laughs> Gag first, no, hands second. You know what? Gag first and then legs second. Okay. Because okay. you want to be 
you know, run. Mobile. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mobile. It. And then, oh, yeah. I see. I, there's a That's going to be your bumper sticker. Gag yeah. first, leg second. <laughs> I just think. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go, Vermont. Yeah, now there you, know. you go, Vermont. Curious Try no not to get kidnapped. That's right. Again, this does sound like you have some experience in this. These are, your books aren't secretly nonfiction, are they? <laughs> no, but yeah. I mean, you can pick up the newspaper. I could pick up the newspaper any morning and, and read a three-line story, and I can turn that into a book. Oh, man. So the next one is going to be about, you know, health care reform? No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not Jack. that story. Actually, it's going to be about Afghanistan, so oh, there wow. you go. All right. Looking forward to it. It'll come out in about two weeks. <laughs> Jackie Collins, <laughs> thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Oh, behave well and have fun. Author Jackie Collins, her 29th book is called Confessions of a Wild Child. Man. Those lucky Europeans can get it now. And it hits American Shores February 4th. And folks, if you find yourself in a bind, we say get your hands untied first, actually, Mm -hmm. so you can type up an etiquette question and send it to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, time to eavesdrop. Long before American Idol, there was the TV talent contest Star Search, And Oklahoma native Sam Harris won the very first season in 1983. Since then, he sold a few million records and starred on Broadway and beyond. Now he's put some of his showbiz stories into writing. Today, we overhear him perform one. Hi, my name is Sam Harris, and I have a brand new book called Ham, for those who know me, obvious reasons. And this is an excerpt. I fear that my karmic lesson in this lifetime is humility. And I think that lesson is beneath me. I got the title role in the national tour of the Broadway production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. One of the unique elements of the tour was that we picked up about 40 local kids in each city to participate on stage with singing and some dancing. For some reason, certain cities produced an astounding number of stage parents who encouraged their little moppets to mug and upstage other actors, seeing this as their wunderkind's big break into show business. Little tykes would come to the put-in with enough makeup to make Courtney Love look like a PTA president. At the end of the show, I sang an encore of Close Every Door. Huge song, had a a, a dramatic key change and a final note that never failed to ensure a standing ovation. The kids were staged to sit around me and gaze up at me with their sweet little faces and sing their sweet little la-las and the sweet little interlude. One night, about a year into the tour, a talented and highly driven ham of a child, who was positioned directly at my feet, kept smiling straight out to the house instead of up at me he somehow edged in front of me so that he was center. Me a number instead of my name. I had to climb over him so as not to step on his hands. After the show, I asked that he politely be told not to crawl in front of me. The next night, he not only made his way in front of me, but took to sitting on his haunches so that he was tall enough to be in my light. Clearly, whoever was talking to him about this problem was not making headway, so I asked to speak to him myself. He was brought to my dressing room, where I told him that I was concerned that I might step on him when I moved downstage and would hate for that to happen. He was quite mannerly, said he hadn't realized he was doing it, and then asked if he could try on my gold finale headdress. The poor kid had been admonished twice. I thought it was the least I could do. 
The next night, little Hormel edged his way down center, rose to his knees, smiled out front, and now I could hear him singing my part. He seemed intentional, calculated, and I knew I should have never let him try on my gold finale headdress, the showbiz equivalent of smack to a junkie. I had no choice but to cut him off cold turkey, so I stepped forward onto his little hand, not giving it my full weight. Well, most of it. And without letting the audience see, I shot him a death stare intended to stunt his growth. It suddenly occurred to me that I was competing with a little kid for my place on the stage and how pathetic that was. What did that say about me? My ego? My hamdom? That was when I stepped on his other hand. After the show, I told him how sorry I was, but I couldn't see him all the way down at my feet for the glare of my spotlight. We stared at each other for a moment. Then he said, oh, it's okay, I didn't, I didn't really feel it. Not with all the applause and excitement and everything. Hey, did you hear that audience tonight? I think they were the best yet. A little slow in the beginning, but by the end, they were like putty. This kid had it bad. I predicted big things. Sam Harris, his collection of showbiz stories and essays just hit stores. It's called Ham Slices of a Life. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Dude, that's my line. And now, the main course, in which we talk about food, a.k.a. the dinner part of the dinner party. Yes, and Brendan... If I said best job in the world, you would say what? Professional nap taker. No question. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but how about pizza tour guide? Whoa. Sir, he takes people around New York City eating pizza with them. That is the life of Riley. For a job. Also the life of pie, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> He's, it's true, but he has earned it. This guy is a pizza obsessive. His name is Scott Wiener, and he actually recently published a book about the history of the pizza box called Viva La Pizza, using his own pizza box collection. Wow. And what caught my eye was actually a story in the latest Wired magazine in which he talked about what he claims is the best pizza box on earth. When I spoke to him this week, though, first I asked what about pizza boxes caught his fancy. You know, I think part of it is growing up in the Northeast. Pizza is is a staple, just as it is anywhere in the country. But in the Northeast, it's sort of you're driving home from somewhere, you pick up a pizza every Friday night. It's every step of that process sort of embeds itself in your 11-year-old mind. That's right. And you know what I mean? And that white box with the red writing is such a huge part of it that when I was traveling around Israel in 2008 and I saw a pizza box that was yellow with blue writing, that was sort of... That's how you knew you were in Israel. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, this is not home anymore. They got pizza boxes that are yellow. By the way, so is there sort of a reason why they are yellow there and red and white here? Do we know? Sort of. Really, the whole project with the collection that I have of pizza boxes, part of it was, oh, maybe I can figure out why these things happen. And really, in the U.S., pizza comes out of the history of bakeries. And so bakery boxes that you used to, you know, that you have cookies packed in and cakes, those became the early pizza boxes. And those were always white with a cheap, smudgy red ink on top. And uh, it's just that because we have that lineage, ours haven't changed very much. But since places like Israel and even some parts of Italy, Africa, everywhere, 
pizza boxes are a much newer thing, and even pizza that's delivered or taken out is a newer thing. Wow. They don't have that sort of hundred years of baggage. Yeah, so it's, they just uh, do a modern design. Yeah, that they can. They don't have anything left from 65 years ago. So let's talk about a little bit of the technology. First of all, functionally, what makes a good pizza box? You know, it's there are so few pizza boxes that do anything with regard to function. You know what I mean? It's Pizza boxes are meant to be cheap and carry food, but what would make a pizza box good is its ability to hold heat right. while not holding steam. That's the holy grail. Steam gets trapped in and creates a soggy crust and breaks down some of the components of the box, and therefore you taste a cardboardy taste on your pizza. Uh, but at the same time, you need to trap that steam to trap heat. Otherwise, your pizza arrives cold. So, I mean, I'm assuming that that's what the holes are for, you know, the average pizza box has punch holes in the covers, right? Absolutely. But there are a couple of problems is that, first of all, once you stack a second pizza box on top of the first, you're covering up any holes that are on the top panel. So the steam can't get out. Yes, exactly. So you're trapping it anyway. And 90% of the time, pizzerias don't pop those vents anyway. <laughs> You know, it's designed, it's in there, it's possible. But, you know, at the same time, if you lose all that steam, you're losing all the heat. I think most people would rather get a pizza hot. Yeah. And then the sogginess is something that we've sort of come to accept. I don't necessarily agree. I'd rather get a pizza home that's not soggy and then I can... Yeah, that's right. I can reheat it if I need. Sure, you can just put it in the oven. Sure. What is wrong with people? But you've now come upon the holy grail of pizza boxes. Yeah, I've, it was in India. What is the box like? Okay, so it's it's a box from a company called Sri Krishna Packaging, and it's called the Ventit Box. Right. And it was created by this guy who was in corrugated cardboard. The way it works is instead of having just yeah. a hole, a straight hole, yeah. it has an indirect vent. Corrugation works by having a fluted, wavy medium, a piece of paper that's kind of wavy in the center. And then on the top and the bottom of it are affixed liners. So you have three pieces of paper, the outer liner, the inner liner, and the fluted medium in between the two. Uh So the normal process is you put these three layers together and then you stamp holes through them. This guy's process is he stamps holes through them before they're assembled, and when they are assembled, the holes don't line up. And so steam is able to escape indirectly. It travels up, across, through the fluted medium, and then out. So it allows steam to escape, but not so much and at such a rapid pace that the heat is lost. Exactly. And does this add, you know, $20 to your pizza because <laughs> you're paying for this piece of technology that comes with it? You know, it's funny. It's, it's not any more expensive. The only expense is the rearrangement of the equipment to make the corrugated board. And is that the only reason we don't have it here? Yeah, it's it really, he just needs critical mass for people to want it, for it to make sense to rearrange equipment in a facility. And when you get down to it, the cost of it is not much more expensive than the standard box. So we just need all pizza lovers to write to their local pizza box manufacturer <laughs> and demand, and that's a lot of people, man. That would be a scary number of people. It is a scary, well, yeah, I think 94% of, of Americans eat pizza at least once a month. <laughs> of course. Are you the kind of person that now has this gentleman in India send you over these boxes that you're now presenting to your local pizzeria and saying, could you please deliver my pizzas in these boxes? <laughs> Well, you know, he's asked me about being involved with the sales of the box, and it's not really something I'm interested in. But I'm saying Uh, as the ultimate enthusiast, can you stand getting your pizza in a box that you now know to be inferior? Well, it's a funny question because I... Okay, I'm as much as I'm obsessed with pizza boxes, and I have this gigantic archive of pizza boxes that I keep at home uh, for research purposes. I I hate pizza, but I never eat pizza out of boxes. I I don't order pizza. 
I, you know what? It's that's just the truth. <laughs> oh, the irony! It's so pure irony. So you just eat at the uh, at the restaurant. I mean, the best way to eat a pizza is in the pizzeria. It's clearly inferior as soon as it leaves, but it doesn't have to be as inferior. That's how I feel about these boxes. So Rico, that explains those piles of pizza boxes in college dorms. Yeah. They're pizza box archives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not an oil-stained cockroach haven. It's research. Got it. Yes. Come check out my wine bottle archive someday. I will apply for a scholarship. It's amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, coming up, we learn about a man who digs digging caves. And the writer and star of the indie film favorite, Ruby Sparks, talks about her new unromantic play about romance. I feel kind of allergic to mushy love. That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we will meet our guest of honor, actor and writer Zoe Kazan. Plus, we'll hear a new song from German electronic band The No Twist. But first, a peek into the Oscar race. Yes, the 2014 Academy Award nominees were announced last week. Mm-hmm. You've undoubtedly heard about Best Picture nominees like American Hustle and 12 Years a Slave. And everyone, of course, listened a couple weeks back when we chatted with the Best Supporting Actress nominee, Lupita Nyong'o. Of course they did. Yeah, they're not fools. But most of us are less familiar with the documentary films on the list, and even less so with the short documentary film nominees. Hmm. In an effort to remedy that, earlier this week I chatted with Jeffrey Karoff. He's the director of Cave Digger, one of the short doc nominees. And Cave Digger is about Ra Paulette, a guy who lives in northern New Mexico and digs caves for a living. Hmm. But these aren't dark, dank holes, mind you, but magnificent caverns with skylights and sculpted walls. When I met with Jeffrey, I asked him to describe the first time he entered one of Ra's caves. I met Shell and Liz, who are two people that play prominently in the film in the town where Ra does his work. And um, they had said that they were having a cave made on their property. And my (laughs) wife and I were intrigued and said, can we see it? And they walked us towards the mountain where the cave was. And it's it's wild, you know, it's it's nature. And then suddenly you're walking up a set of stairs and there's a door in the side of the mountain, which is already pretty odd. Um, But then walking into their cave, and coming around the corner and entering the space that with the huge skylight and the sculpted walls was breathtaking. And I think it's breathtaking for everybody that takes that journey. That's a shot that I replicated in the film, that exact Mm -hmm. journey that I took. How did Ra start digging caves? He doesn't have any background as an artist at all. He was basically a, a laborer, and uh, he was a garbage man. He worked on farms. But he had some sense, I think, of uh, that he had something inside of him that he wanted to express. And he said he saw a little cave that kids had dug and from that recognized that the material was both malleable and uh, firm. So yeah. it held up. And he started trying to do that himself. So it entirely came from something inside of him. The opening portion of the of the doc is you you marvel at this man, one individual against rock, but then that beautiful metaphor kind of runs into other people, the patrons, his wife. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the tensions uh, around his project? 
Well, he is an uh, an artist, but what he makes is something that people who hire him to do these caves consider to be something more like architecture. Mm. So they uh, there is this conflict between is he an artist or is he a contractor? If you commissioned a piece of art, you would never stand in somebody's studio and say, you know, add more of this color or put a border on it. Yeah. But as these things unfold uh, on these on the land that the patrons have commissioned the work, they're there and they're coming in uh, on a daily basis and they have ideas, which I think is, I mean, I found that to be kind of humorous because here's a guy who's doing something that had never been done before, um, creating caves mm-hmm. that are works of art, and yet his patrons all have opinions about what they should be. <laughs> and I was yeah. always curious about where did those opinions come from? I mean, what are you comparing this to? I believe people who are commissioning a work of art should be able to give some direction, just like uh, who is Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Who do you think told him what to do? He knew what he wanted to do, but he was directed by the cardinals. Another tension you explore in this movie is between Ra and his wife. She basically supports him. When he is doing commissioned work, he's not earning very much money. And he often isn't doing commissioned work, and he's building his own caves. And she seems frustrated by that a little bit. And he talks about the tension in their marriage around that. And at one point, he says he has kind of a Peter Pan complex. Well, I think what he means by that is that uh, his obsession has um, has made it so that he doesn't pursue things that the rest of us pursue, like uh, recognition, remuneration, advancement, all those things that we all hold dear. We mere mortals hold dear, and we, we compromise many things in order to get those things. Yeah. Um, he's not willing to compromise to get those things. Do you feel like he's found what he's seeking? Has his path led him to where he wants to be? That, that's a, that's an interesting question. He he talks about the value of process all the time. Mm-hmm. So even, uh, you, you know from watching the film that, that there was an, an accident in one of his caves and that uh, the project came to an end. And one of the things that launched me on making the documentary was that I spoke to him probably seven days after that uh, project shut down. And he had been working on that for almost two years. Hmm. And I was, I was shocked and I was, you know, saddened by the whole thing. And I expressed all of that to him on the phone. And he said, yeah, well, you know, there's, it's it was pretty uh, shocking, but on the other hand, I'm really excited about this project that I've got going now. And this was, yeah, I, I mean, really, seven days afterwards, who who does that except somebody who for whom the process is even more important than the product? And the movie ends with him starting that project. He calls it Magnum Opus Two because Magnum Opus One is the thing that fell apart. Right here goes bugs, Magnum Opus. Take two. (laughs) Uh, And he predicts that it's going to take him a decade to complete. And he's in his 60s. He thinks this will take him to the end of his cave digging years. And it's a magnificent shot. You see Ra attacking the mountain with his little pickaxe. He's just beginning to dig this immense cave. And then the camera pans back. And he becomes just a little speck. And the sound of his tool smashing against the mountain turns into like a little plink. And the viewers left wondering if they're staring at Sisyphus or Michelangelo. That's a nice way to think about it. 
Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming by and chatting with us about this. Thank you very much. Jeffrey Karoff, director of the Oscar-nominated short documentary Cave Digger. And keep your eyes peeled for a program of all the short film nominees. It'll be rolling into movie theaters across the country starting February 14th. Mm, the Valentine's gift. That's right. Nice. A bunch of small ones, like those little hearts. Ah. Yeah. And uh, folks, for information about Cave Digger or to listen to our past interviews with Oscar nominees like directors David O. Russell, Spike Jones, and more, head to our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is Zoe Kazan. She is perhaps best known as the star and the writer of the indie film Ruby Sparks, for which she earned a Spirit Award nomination for Best Screenplay. You may have seen her on the very much missed HBO series Bored to Death, but she has also acted in a slew of Broadway plays, including a revival of Chekhov's The Seagull, and most remain to our purposes today, she writes plays as well. Her latest concludes its world premiere run at South Coast Repertory in Southern California this weekend. It's called Trudy and Max in Love. And Zoe, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So the plot of the play, is, it's actually pretty straightforward. But do you mind giving a little summary? Yeah, it's about a, a married woman in her late 20s who meets an unmarried man in his late 30s. And um, they sort of move into a very dangerous situation where they kind of fall in love. And and you read the play, right, Rico? I'm, <laughs> no, this is the first I've heard of it. That's really the plot? That's crazy. <laughs> Insane. No, I did read it, of course. What inspired you to take on this particular topic? I, I had been wanting to write about an affair, mostly because I'd been sort of thinking, why write a play, basically? A play is so hard to get put on and it's it can be so painful to, to, to have a play go up. And, you know, I, I find the experience of sitting there every night and watching the live event happen really taxing. It's definitely taking years off of my life because you're sitting there being like, oh, my God, what if they forget their lines? It's incredibly nerve wracking. Yeah. Yeah. And like, why not write a TV show or a movie where you get paid money? Um, you can make sure that what's on the screen is going to nobody's going to flub a line. Exactly. And so I'd been thinking, like, you know, what, what can you do on stage that you can't do anywhere else? And I started thinking about an affair and how an affair is sort of like a theater, that there are separate rules inside of a theater than in real life. Oh, interesting. Everyone behaves in a different way when they go in there. And it's also like a little secret space where, you know, you can behave in this completely different way than you do in your real life, both as an audience member and as an actor. And then when you leave, you sort of can only take your memories. The thing dies. You've never been married, to my knowledge. But no. as, as one who has been, I can say you nail kind of uncannily some of the difficulties of being married. Where did uh-huh. you gain that insight? <laughs> well, Rico, I have been with my partner for six years. So It's true, but that's it's not the same thing. I mean Well, I don't know. You know, I, I think I think a lot about marriage. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's always asking me when we're gonna get married. So uh, it's definitely on my on my mind. And the idea in general of monogamy, I mean what it means to sort of just choose one person and keep choosing that person and yeah. It seems kind of crazy to me, and yet here I am in a monogamous, you know, six-year relationship. So I struggle with the idea of it, and I sort of wanted to write about that. And you can sense that struggle actually in the characters in this play. Like, even as they're falling madly in love, 
they're constantly challenging each other about what they believe about love and how they should be behaving or why it doesn't matter. Well, you know, I feel kind of allergic to mushy love stuff. You know, I, I just never been really good with it. <laughs> like in high school, my, my boyfriend would open the door for me and I'd be like, don't open the door for me. <laughs> just, You're above that. so passe. Exactly. So uncool. So 1960. Um, I think that as a result, there's a like I'm much more interested in the kind of muscularity of a love story, like, you know, people that don't get bowled over by, you know, red roses. And that's kind of why I think these people get into trouble in some ways is that they both feel that they're in control or in some ways above sentimentality. Mm. And then they get very much caught up in sentiment. Yeah, I have to ask, this play and also your movie, Ruby Sparks, both are about the difficulties of relationships. Ruby Sparks actually starred your boyfriend, Paul Mm. Dano, opposite you. I wonder if these pieces, do they inspire Mm. conversation between the two of you about your relationship? Or do you just kind of try to pretend (laughs) that you haven't bared your psyche on the page? Yeah, yeah. Let's not deal with it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Probably the latter. Probably, like, let's not deal with it. Really? (laughs) I mean, a little bit. I think it's really hard to talk about. You know, the impossibility of knowing another person is something that, you know, artists have grappled with for a really long time. But I think even being together as long as Paul and I have, you know, sometimes I feel like there's no way for for him to understand what it's like to be inside of my skin. But you're writing plays and movies that kind of are the inside of you brought outside. Like, in a way, he gets a clearer vision than most people do of what's going on in his partner's brain. I mean, all I can say is that, you know, he, he, he still digs me, so I guess he's okay <laughs> with the way that I think. <laughs> it's intense, know. though. That's intense. It is. It is intense. I think it would be an... Un- unavoidable topic of conversation after, you know, going to opening night and being like, maybe should we talk about relationships right now? Someday you and I will have a beer and we can talk all about that. (laughs) All right. We'll leave it off the radio. Um, We have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Yeah. Question number one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? What are you kind of sick of answering? Uh, What what do you do for a living? (laughs) Really? Yeah. I just feel like when you say I'm an actor or whatever, or I'm a writer, but specifically when you say I'm an actor, people say like, oh, what what would I have seen you in? And then you're sort of made to recite your CV. <laughs> I mean, people this <laughs> people will come up to me on the street and say like, you're an actor, right? I'll be like, yeah. And they'll be like, what did I see you in? <laughs> I feel like saying like... <laughs> If you don't know, you don't come up and don't come up and yeah. talk to me. Like, it had almost no impact on me, but I kind of vaguely know that something's up. I kind up of here. vaguely know you. Yeah, I just it feels so embarrassing to recite your resume to people. Yeah, I get embarrassed when you recited my res- resume at the beginning of this. I don't know. It just feels kind of like you're constantly advertising yourself. I don't know. I just get really self-conscious. I Sometimes I lie, you know, just so that I just don't have to <laughs> really? do that. I play yeah. Princess Leia. No, I'll say, like, <laughs> oh, I'm a geologist or something, just so that they don't ask me any more questions. Smart. All right, yeah. here's, here's our second question, and it's tell us something that we don't know. And this can be either about yourself or just the world at large, a piece of trivia about something. Well, you know, I, I am uh, I'm trying to get there's a dog who is up for adoption at Perfect Pet Rescue, which is an organization here in L.A. Um, right. The dog's name is Wiley, and it's a chihuahua, and he needs a home. He's four pounds, and he's super sweet. We can't have a dog in our apartment, or I would take him. Um, 
Are you saying that there's a specific dog that you want us to adopt? Yeah, Wiley at Perfect Pet Rescue. <laughs> it's it's only a year old. It's really sweet. I went and met this dog, and um, and he really needs a home. And, that is the nicest he... thing anybody's ever said on our show. <laughs> Good. I feel like super. I was like crying about this dog last night. I feel super passionate about it. He's just the sweetest dog, and I can't I can't take a dog. All right, we will, we will happily put his picture on our website. It'll be the first time our culture show has saved a life. <laughs> Yay! Dinner party, productive. <laughs> Once and I told you twice Why be mean when you can be nice Come on Zoe Kazan, her new play Trudy and Max in Love wraps up this weekend at South Coast Rep. This spring she appears in the film The F Word opposite Daniel Radcliffe. And true to our word, folks can head to dinnerpartydownload.org and see a picture of Wiley. He exists and you could be his hero. You know, with a name like Wiley, though, are we sure he's to be trusted? <laughs> That's, you know. <laughs> All right, I see what you're doing there. He sounds nice. like a trickster. How do we know he's not actually a cat? <laughs> That's the dinner party download for this week. Thank you for attending. You're free to retrieve your jackets from the bedroom. Yes, bundle up, especially East Coasters. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of the dinner party download. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. James Delahousie is one of our interns. And welcome to Esther Mania, our newest intern. Congrats on surviving the hazing. She did great. Yes. Thanks also to Jeff Peters, Bill Lance, and Brendan Willard, who provided engineering assistance. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road. A song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. German band The No Twist started out playing heavy metal. Nine albums later, they've evolved into electronic pop musicians. Their latest Close to the Glass comes out next month. Here's a track from it called Kong. Bon appetit. Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. Man, I'm not sure this cave studio of yours is working out. I'm just Come saying. on, we're right underneath Radio Lab and they don't even know it. <laughs>